You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast. For a complete list of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. If you're keeping score in your bulletin, uh, my secretary messed up bad and put the uh, title from last week. So she's gone now. We don't have a secretary any longer at the chapel. The folks that are laughing know we've never had one here. That was my fault. When I went back in and changed everything, I got most of it right. We'll get a B this week on bulletin. I invite you to open to Acts chapter 12. Preaching through the book of Acts this summer and really enjoying it. And this morning, really the title is God's Will Be Done. Or you could say God's Will Will Be Done. One of my favorite authors on prayer, in fact, he doesn't write a lot about prayer, just a lot about this particular man has been written because of his prayer life. So I want to share a story that is actually related by a great evangelist by the name of Charles Inglis. He was on a boat coming to America, and here's what he says. When, when I first came to America 31 years ago, I crossed the Atlantic with a captain of a steamer who was one of the most devoted men I ever knew. And we were off the banks of Newfoundland. He said to me, Mr. Inglis, the last time I crossed here was five weeks ago. One of the most extraordinary things happened that has completely revolutionized the whole of my Christian life. Up to that time, I was one of your ordinary Christians. We had a man of God on board, George Mueller of Bristol. I had been on that bridge for 22 hours and never left it. I was was startled when someone tapped me on my shoulder. It was George Mueller. Captain said he, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. This is Wednesday. I said to him, it is impossible. We're completely fogged in. Very well. If your ship can't take me, God will find another means of locomotion to take me. I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. I would willingly help you, but how can I? I am helpless. He said, let's go down to your chart room and pray. I looked at this man and thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could this man have come from? I've never heard of such a thing. Mr. Mueller said, do you know how dense the fog is? No, he replied, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He went down on his knees and prayed one of the most simple prayers. I thought to myself, this would suit a children's class where the children were not more than eight or nine years of age. The burden of his prayer was something like this. Oh, Lord, if it is consistent with thy will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec for Saturday. I believe it is your will. When he finished praying, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. First, he said, you do not believe God will do it. And secondly, I believe he's already done it. And there was no need whatever for you to pray about it. I looked at him and George Mueller said this, Captain, I've known my Lord for 57 years and there's never been a single day that I failed to gain an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door and you'll find the fog is gone. I got up and the fog was gone. On Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec. If you've never read about this great man of God and the faith of a man who really ran a bunch of orphanages, I encourage you to read about George Mueller. It's really that sense that I want us to get to in Acts chapter 12 today. Really two things 
before you leave here today, I hope you get these two things. Number one, God answers prayer. And number two, God's will will be done. God's purpose will be accomplished. I want to read just the first six verses of chapter 12, and then we'll come back and read a little little bit more later. But chapter 12 of Acts 1 through 6, listen. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. I want you to see the hopelessness of the situation. And folks, I would recognize in a crowd this size, there's probably someone here this morning who your circumstances are nowhere near what we're reading this morning. But they're also just as hopeless. So I want to encourage you with the fact that God actually hears prayers. God knows what's going on in your life. Let's just look, unpack a little bit of of this passage. We're talking about Herod, and you hear the word Herod often in the New Testament. There were a bunch of Herods. Herod the Great was ruling during the time of Christ's birth. Ruthless man. Had his wife killed, had some of his sons killed. He found out that the wise men were coming to worship the king of the Jews, which was the title he took for himself. And so he had all the male children, two years old and under, put to death. That's that Herod. This was his grandson. There are several Herods in between the great, Herod the Great, and now we get down to Herod Agrippa I. And that's who this is. And yet kind of the same M.O. He lays hands on some of the specific members of the early church. Now keep in mind, this is Jerusalem. We've already seen Peter and some of the other disciples beaten. We've seen Stephen put to death. And yet what's happening in the church? The church is growing. In fact, they quit counting. You know, one time they said there was 3,000 that joined. Then they said there's over 5,000 men that are part of the church. Then they just started seeing us a multitude is growing too fast. The church is spread outside of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and it's really getting to the uttermost parts of the earth because we've had a man from Ethiopia come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And so the gospel is doing exactly what Jesus said it would do, and it upset the religious people in Jerusalem. So Herod laid hands on some of these people. And I think what he was doing is taking some of the pillars of the church. And he thought, if I can remove some of the pillars of the church, the church will collapse. The whole system will collapse and we'll be done with this. This uproar, this upsetting all the, the religious people that have been here for thousands of years. And so he, put, he puts James, the brother of John, and you've heard about James. He was one of the disciples referred to as the sons of Zebedee, James and John, he ends up having him put to death. In fact, this is the same James who the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked for a wish. She said, would you grant me what I would ask you? And she said, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on either side of you, on your left and your right. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we're able And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom 
It has been prepared by my Father. Yes, Jesus told James, you're going to suffer similar to me. And James was put to death by the sword. That's all the information we're given. We know from history that the Jews had four means of death. You could either be stoned to death. You could be burned. You could be killed with a sword, which either meant that you were stabbed to death or your head was cut off, or you were strangled. Now, the Romans had other means of torture and other means of death, and one of those we know was crucifixion on a cross, but they also killed with a sword. Now, for a Jew to do that, it meant that we're killing you with a sword because you have led people astray to strange worship. You're worshiping strange gods. And so the Romans, Herod, had James put to death according to that manner, basically saying to the Jews, hey, I'm going to do this on your behalf because he has led people away from the God of the Old Testament. Well, obviously he had not. He had led them to worship Jesus, which was a fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. And yet James is put to death. And here's what happens after that. Herod notices that it pleased the Jews. Now, Herod was not interested in justice. He wasn't interested in anybody having a trial. But he noticed that it pleased the Jews. So he thought, okay, I'll do one better than that. I'll arrest Peter and have him put to death. So he lays hands on Peter, puts him in prison, because it was during the feast surrounding the Passover called Unleavened Bread. And so he puts Peter in prison and waits until the feast is over. And his intention is, I'm going to bring him out in front of the people and have him put to death also. At this time, basically the church, all they could do is pray. In fact, fervently pray for Peter's release. I want you to see just the hopelessness of this. Several things that we see happen is he, he was, Peter was put in prison. He was assigned 16 guards who they would work three-hour shifts. So there's four guys guarding him. When he's sleeping, two of them are on either side of him, one on either side. So his arm, his right arm is chained to the next guy's left arm. And his left arm is chained to the other guy's right arm. You get the picture? So there's three of them laying there, Peter in the middle, chained between two guards. The other two guards are watching the gate. And the gate is locked. So I'm not exactly sure what the church was praying, whether the church was praying, please just spare his life, or God, could you do what you've done before? Get him out of prison. All we know is the church is praying. And here's what amazes me. What's Peter doing? He's asleep. I don't know about you, but Peter had to know what was coming. Peter knew they've already killed James. I'm next. The only thing to lay in him is we're in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As soon as that's over, and by the way, that's tomorrow. And he's asleep. That amazes me. Do you think Peter just decided, you know what? Whatever God wants, that's what I want. If they kill me tomorrow, okay. If God rescues me supernaturally, fine, I'm going to get some sleep. <laughs> now, folks, you have placed your confidence in God when you can lay down in the midst of that and go to sleep. In fact, I thought about even back in Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told, you better bow down and worship the king's idol because if you don't, we're stoking up a hot furnace and we're going to kill you. You remember what they said? He said, you know what? God's able to save us. And we think he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship you. What does Peter say? Hey, I know God can rescue me. But even if he doesn't, 
I'm not going to stop doing the very thing that you're so upset about. I'm not going to stop people telling. I'm not going to stop telling people about Jesus and the fact that he saved my life and that he is the Messiah. I'm just not going to stop. So the situation is hopeless. Now let's look at the daring rescue. I wouldn't even call it a daring rescue, just a miraculous rescue. Look what happens in the next few verses. Let me pick up with verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, but he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now, I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So this rescue starts at night. In the middle of the night, Peter's asleep, and the angel appears in the cell. In fact, a light shines in the cell, which was a normal thing. That happened a lot of times when an angel appeared, this bright light. And my thought is, how did this not wake everybody else up? Folks, I think it was, again, supernatural that the two guards on either side of him stayed asleep, and the two men that were guarding the jail were also asleep. And I want to tell you, the normal occurrence for these four guys would not be to sleep. They only had to watch for three hours. And the penalty for letting one of your prisoners escape was that you would get the same penalty that they were in line for. So they knew, these four guys guarding Peter knew it meant death if he escaped. So, folks, I don't think that they just decided, I'm going to take a nap, he's asleep. I think supernaturally, the angel causes them to go to sleep. He wakes Peter up, and he gives him some specific directions. It's kind of interesting. He, first of all, he has to strike his side. The light doesn't wake him up. So he goes over, and it says he kind of hits him in the side and says, hey, Peter, wake up. And as soon as Peter stands up, the chains fall off. And the angel gives him specific directions. Gird yourself, put your clothes on, put your sandals on, and get your outer cloak. Bottom line, Peter's still asleep, kind of. You know, he's kind of first awake. For those parents that have children that get them ready for school on Monday morning, this is kind of what that's like. You know, the kids are still kind of asleep in the car or on the bus on the way to school. Peter's, you know, the angel is having to say, remember to get dressed. By the way, we're not coming back. <laughs> so get your cloak, too. And so he takes him out. And, you know, if Peter was awake, I think my question would be, uh, Angel, I'm glad you're here. Have you noticed the two guys guarding the gate? Have you noticed the gate is a big iron gate? And I don't think we're going to open it without waking somebody up. Well, he didn't ask that question. That's just the one I would have asked. But he's still kind of half asleep. So they start walking out, and they come to, they pass by both the guards. And the guards don't say anything. I think it's because the guards were asleep. Then they come to this iron gate, and what does it do? It opens by itself. This huge locked gate just opened. I don't know if that's where Walmart got the idea from for, like, you know, automatic gates, but that's what happened. This is the miraculous sense of what happened. Peter stands up, chains fall off, nobody wakes up to stop them. And when they get to this big gate, what does it do? Opens up all by itself. They get a little bit away from the prison, go down a street, 
And all of a sudden, the angel disappears. It's at about this point that Peter kind of comes to himself and realizes this isn't a dream. Now, where do you think Peter might have gotten the idea that maybe this is just a vision that I'm having? Well, he had had a vision back in chapter 10. So Peter had experience with that. And maybe he thought this seems like this can't be happening. In fact, he basically says, is this for real? Could this really be happening? When he finally gets out into the street and realizes I'm out, but now the angels disappeared. My question would have been, okay, now what do I do? I'm out. I better kind of hide. I don't think I need to start screaming and shouting, you know, hey, Herod, you thought you had me locked up, you know. So what does he do? He goes over to Mary's house and he recognizes that God has rescued him and that he's thwarted the plans of the Jewish people. The Jewish people were expecting the next day to see another execution of one of these pillars of the church. And what Herod didn't recognize and what the Jewish people didn't recognize is, yeah, Peter was a was a pillar of the church, I suppose, and certainly James could be declared that way. He's one of the disciples. But see, the real foundation of the church, they had already killed, and he didn't stay dead. That's because that's Jesus. And so now we have this miraculous rescue. Then look at the response. This is what amazes me perhaps more than anything in here, is the response to this answered prayer. Miracle has taken place. Let's look how the church responds. When he realized this, so Peter realizes, okay, I'm out of the jail. What do I do now? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is only his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have happened to Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down to Judea, from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So here's what Peter does. Hey, I'm out of jail. I'm going to go over to Mary's house. I don't know if he knew the church was gathered there praying, but he knew this was kind of a centrally located place. Maybe somebody would be there. So he approaches Mary. Mary's house, the mother of John Mark, and he knocks on the door. Now, keep in mind, he's trying to be quiet. You know, the the servant girl says, who is it? Which she's in her right mind to do that because you didn't just open the door in the middle of the night to somebody. The church was being persecuted. People were being arrested. And so she goes to open the door. If she had said, who is it? And it had been Herod or one of his people, she wouldn't have opened the door. But it's Peter. This should have been good news for her. And I imagine Peter is knocking lightly because he doesn't want to disturb anybody and let people know, hey, I'm out of jail. So they come arrest him again. Who is it? It's Peter. It's Peter. Be quiet. Keep it down. It's Peter. She recognized his voice. And she gets so excited. Rather than opening the door, letting him in, she runs in to tell everybody. Now, what were the people doing? They're praying. These people are having an all-night prayer meeting because they knew the circumstances were bad for Peter. They knew likely tomorrow Peter's going to be taken out of his jail cell. He's going to be put up in front of the people and he's going to be put to death. 
But here's what they say when she says, hey, Peter's outside. In other words, God has answered our prayer. What do they say? You're out of your mind. My son would put it this way. "Uh -uh." (laughs) Uh-uh. Wait a minute. What were you praying? Weren't you praying that God would spare his life? Weren't you praying that God would get him out of prison? Don't raise your hand. But have there ever been times you prayed for something? And then you told somebody something like this? You're not going to believe it. God answered prayer. Well, hello, he does that. And did you believe it when you prayed it? Now, folks, I think when they prayed, they knew God could do something. I'm just not sure they knew the extent to which God was going to do it. And God has miraculously answered their prayer. Now, when I approach this passage, I think God didn't answer their prayer for James. James was put to death. And it may very well be they didn't even have time to petition God because it was before the Passover. And James is just arrested and beheaded or pierced with a sword. He's dead. But I do know this. Even if prayer had been placed for James, God's purpose was being fulfilled. God had a purpose in James's life. God had a purpose in James's death. And he wasn't ready yet for Peter to, to make the same fate. Because what happened to James? When they cut his head off or when they pierced him with a sword, when he died, where did he go? Into the presence of the Lord. So Peter, when he ultimately dies, and he will, he's going to be in the presence of the Lord. God just wasn't ready for it to be that day. And so he answers their prayer. First thing they say is, you're a maniac. Can't be. And she kept insisting. Now, why didn't it cross somebody's mind? Let's go look. But instead, they come up with another philosopher. Well, maybe it's just his angel. The Jews had a belief that you had a guardian angel. That there's even some scriptural evidence for that being a possibility. And so they thought maybe it's just his angel. Maybe the voice you're hearing is... Is his angel. So they go and look, finally, open the door, and it says that Peter keeps knocking. I mean, he's out there thinking, would you please let me in? I'm on the loose here. I'm trying to hide. Just let me in. It's me. And they come and look, and what does it say? When they open the door and realize it's him, it says they were amazed. And apparently their amazement, in fact, it's really kind of the same words. They accused Rhoda of being a maniac. Now they're acting like maniacs. They're out of their mind with amazement. And I imagine they were making some noise. Okay, In the middle of the night, with houses close together, you start making noise. What happens? You start waking the whole street up. And so Peter's saying, hey, hey, be quiet. Let me just tell you what happened. And so he relates to them the events of the evening that have unfolded. And how he's been miraculously led out of prison by this angel. And he says to him, hey, tell James, not the James that was put to death, but James who became a leader in the first century church, James, the half-brother of Jesus, tell him that I'm, I'm, I'm away, I'm out of prison. And then he went somewhere for three chapters. And scholars debate over where he went, but he, he went into hiding for three chapters. We find him back in Jerusalem in chapter 15. But James leaves the scene. What does Herod do? The next morning, Herod gets up and sends for Peter. Today's going to be a great day in the life of Herod. He's going to prove to the Jews one more time, hey, I'm your friend. You better stay on my side because I'm helping you out. He sends for Peter to be brought and finds out Peter's not there. He examines the guard, literally scrutinizes, investigates. I imagine he brought them one by one. What happened last night? And then he has them put to death. What does that say to the whole city of Jerusalem? He put them to death. He followed the edict that if you allow a prisoner to escape, 
then you're going to get the same fate they were in line for. All, all Herod is trying to do is, no, this wasn't miraculous. This was just some sloppy guard work. Now imagine he didn't kill all 16. He probably killed the four that were on the shift for those three hours. But he put those four guys to death. Not acknowledging that this was of God. Not acknowledging that it was a miracle. And I'm sure these guys in their explanation would have given that indication. And then he leaves there and goes from Judea down to the city of Caesarea, which is on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. Basically, you know, things aren't going so well for Herod in Jerusalem. Just lost one of his prisoners. He's just had to kill four people. So he went to this retreat, literally this palace of Caesar down on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. And he's down there for a while. In fact, we get some history from a, a, an ancient historian by the name of Josephus. It's not Bocephus, it's Josephus. Okay? And there's a couple of things we can read in his writings that tell us that he was probably there for a few months. And here's what's happening. There's a festival day approaching. There's a day when they would have had games in either the amphitheater there at Caesarea or in the Hippodrome right next to the amphitheater in Caesarea. And he shows up with his snappy outfit on that just just dazzled as the sun hit it. He just looked like he had all these jewels in his outfit. And people just, you know, were going, oh, Herod, you're the greatest. Then he starts to speak. Let me read the passage to you. Verses 20 through 24. Now, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. So the last thing is simply the purpose of God continues. Herod is really angry. We don't find out why he's angry with this country to his north, but he's angry. In fact, the word anger really means he's ready to go to war with these people. And so there's a delegation sent from these two cities of that country, Tyre and Sidon, and they come down to beg the king for mercy. Now, one reason is they didn't want to be slaughtered by Herod's army, but also they got all their food From Herod's country. They were on the seashore. They couldn't grow crops and all that. So all the stuff that was grown inland belonged to Herod's territory. So they wanted the food. So they basically were coming to say, please don't start a war. And please don't stop our food supply. And so they're doing everything they can. They kind of gained favor with one of his chamberlains, which basically meant this guy was probably just in charge of his bedroom. He kind of looked over, you know, the, the suite or the part of Herod's palace that he was staying in where he slept. His name was Blastus. Okay, that's a great name in Scripture. You know, it's not, not, not something you want to say, hey, come Blastus. No, that's not it. You know, but his name's Blastus, and maybe they bribed him, or maybe they convinced him by argument, but they got favor with him. And so then Herod comes out in this great array. And so what do they do when he starts to speak? Oh, you're not a man. You're a God. You're not speaking with the voice of a man. You're speaking with the voice of God. And whether they believed it or not, They're basically trying to gain favor with Herod. And so they say that. Well, Herod obviously ate that up. Remember, his motivation is not justice. His motivation is not the truth. His motivation is to be lifted up in people's eyes. He realized with the Jews he could do it by killing certain people. 
Here he was doing it on his little seaside retreat there on the banks of the Sea of the Mediterranean Sea. And he did not give God the glory. We read at the beginning of our time today from Isaiah chapter 42, but verse 8, just to remind you, God says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So Herod is praised as though he were some kind of a god. And it says because he didn't give God the glory, he was immediately struck by an angel. And it says literally he was eaten by worms. Now, again, we go back to the historian Josephus, and he tells us this story in his history. And it says it took about five days. You know, you read immediately and you think he died right there. No, he was struck right there. But he went back to his chamber with Blastus for five days, being eaten alive by worms. Why? Because he didn't give God glory. He tried to place himself above God. He tried to be a God in the people's eyes. And God says, I won't share my glory with another. It may be immediate. It may be five days later. It may be longer than that to us, it seems. But I promise you this. God will not share his glory with another. And then what happens? The last verse. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Everything the enemy has thrown at the church has not caused it to diminish. In fact, the very opposite has happened. It's continued to grow. As we close this morning, the so what question or the so what thought is this. Same thing I said at the beginning. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And secondly, God's will will be done. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. And I just want to say this. While we're praying, if you're one of those that you've walked into the place this morning and you're thinking, you know, there's something going on in my life that is utterly hopeless. Maybe you have tried everything within your means to solve the issue that you're dealing with. I just want to say to you today, turn to God. Paul in Ephesians says that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or think. So if your issue is health related, if it's financially related, if it's a relationship issue, whatever it is. This morning, I encourage you to turn it over to the Lord. And then understand this. When Jesus said back in Matthew, I will build my church, that's what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. You're part of that. The word of God continued to grow, and not just grow, but it was multiplied. Father, I pray this morning for folks sitting before me. God, thank you that you are a God who not only hears our prayer, but God, you answer prayer. And Lord, we know that you answer it in your timing and according to your will. And Lord, the truth is, we wouldn't want it any other way. God, there's times that we pray and we just, we're wanting something immediately. But yet, God, it's a comfort to know that, God, you never answer a prayer too soon or too late. Thank you for that. And, God, thank you there's times you don't answer the prayer the way we ask it. You actually change our asking to be in accordance with your will. Because, Lord, we don't want our will done. We want your will to be done. So thank you for this passage. Thank you for the reminder it is for us nearly 2,000 years later to understand that you are holy, you're sovereign, you're supernatural, you're purposeful, and God, you're a God who deserves all the glory. And so we give that to you today in Christ's name. Amen.